Your life is an opportunity. We live deliberately, relentlessly pursuing our goals. We don't settle for mediocrity. We aspire to greatness. We are mindful of the process, but we demand results. We embrace our role as leaders, and we lead by example. There is no finish line. We are leveling up every day until the end. We will win together. Welcome to the Landlording Life Podcast. Today, I have a guest, Joel Farrell, coming to us from St. Louis, Missouri. Joel's a mortgage broker. He also has a podcast, the Strive for 25 podcast, and he's a real estate investor. So should be a great episode. How are you doing today, Joel? I'm doing really good. Happy Wednesday. Love it. Love it. Love. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Yep. Recording on Wednesday and we release on Wednesday, so that will work perfectly. <laughs> nice. It is Wednesday, whatever day you're hearing the show. Got a lot of things going on. You've been a mortgage broker since 2006, been out the game a long time, seen, seen many, many things. Uh, do you enjoy that work? I love it because you get to see and talk to so many different people and all kinds of different walks of life, different stages of their, of their journey in life and business and all that stuff. And, you know, you get to learn a lot you get to teach a lot, you get to see a lot. So it's never a dull moment that that's for sure. Um, but it's not, for, this industry is not for everybody. <laughs> it's, it's stressful. It's, you know, a lot of hours, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubt, you know, and then a lot of, you know, positive and joys and, and successes that come into it. But it, it's definitely a roller coaster of, of an industry, especially right now in this environment where rates and prices have gone, have gone up quite a bit in the last couple of years. And so the, the level of activity is almost coming to a screeching halt, rel relatively speaking, compared to the you know, last 10, 12 years. So that kind of goes into, you know, there are things that I'm working on, you know, podcasts you know, and social media, YouTube, you know, online course, real estate. There's, it's always important to have a couple other things going besides just your, your day job. Glad you mentioned that it's not for everyone. Cause I was going to ask if you recommend young people, if it's a good industry to get into or not so much. And are people falling out of the business right now just because of the, the demand drying up? Yeah, I think it's a really kind of a double-sided, uh, two sides of the coin kind of a question. You know, I think I saw a stat recently that 30% of uh, originators did not renew their license, you know, at the turn of the year. That's, that's a massive, a massive drop. For people that have been in the business for a while, that have kind of built their relationships and built their their kind of database and built their networks, you know, the people that can survive this and come up the other side, I don't know when the other side is going to be, or if there will be, I don't know. But if you can come out of, the, out of this stronger, better, faster, smarter, more efficient, um, better on technology, you know, those are going to be people that are going to be able to kind of rise above. Um, but at the same time, I actually know a couple people who are getting in the business right now, who just got into the business, they got their licenses, um, you know, in the last three or four or five months. And I think it's a massive opportunity because of that, because I think the, the population of people in our industry is going to be shrinking. But at the same time, the people that I have in my mind are people that aren't just brand new off the streets that are 23, 24 out of college and wanting to learn the business. These are people that have built, uh, have done things in other industries and, you know, along the way and have, you know, business sense and have, you know, had that business ex experience and they've got their own network and databases that they'll be able to tap into. Now they have a unique tool to be able to help people build wealth. Cause that's what, that's, that's how I look at real estate, real estate, you know, from a lot of people, you have to have a house to live in, you need shelter and, you know, people can either rent or they can choose to purchase, but at the same time, you know, there are a lot of people that use real estate as a tool to be able to build wealth and massive amounts of wealth. And when you start to kind of dig into some of these examples, um, it, it becomes eye-opening uh, of the difference. Um, can I share one with you? Is that okay? Absolutely. Go ahead. So, you know, 
one of the examples I give a lot is that let's say you've got somebody that's got $10,000 that they want to, you know, decide what the, where they want to invest it. And let's say you get a, a great return in the stock market. So you put your money in the S&P, uh, SPY and you let it ride for a year and you get a great return. I think the historical returns on the, on the uh, stock market is like 10, 10% give or take. In that first year, 10,000 at 10%, what's that return going to be in the first year? I'm going to ask, I'm asking the question. What's that return? Thousand bucks. Thousand bucks. Cool. Unbelievable year. Or you can say, hey, I'm going to go purchase a home, take that 10000 and have a down payment. And for first-time home buyers, you can technically do a 3% down, technically. And there's other programs you can even do less, but let's just keep it very, very simple. So you buy a $300,000 home, you put ten grand down, and you know, in your opinion, what, what would you guess the average appreciation is on real estate over the last 100 years? I don't really know the answer. I just, have, I just know it's a ballpark. Two and a half, three 3%. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think it's like in, in, in between three and four. So let, let's just use three, for example. So that that first year you get three percent appreciation on the house. What's the return uh, in that first year? Almost a hundred percent. Wait, a hundred percent. Almost getting nine thousand on your ten thousand down. Okay, so <laughs> let, let, let's let's break it down. So so three hundred thousand times 0 0.03 is nine thousand. So nine thousand return, and you put in ten grand. So yeah, nine thousand versus one thousand. That you're you're basically taking a return from nine from from one thousand to nine thousand. Mass yeah. massive difference. The power of leverage, absolutely. How? Uh, what percentage of people are putting three percent down these days? Conventional allows three percent down for first-time home buyers and a couple other programs. FHA allows three and a half percent. And I think from um, just looking at the the data that we have, and, and it's not a lot of data because there aren't many buyers. Um, but right now, I'd say about forty percent of people are doing FHA loans right now, which is that three and a half percent down option. And right. and there's a big reason for that that I can share with you later, but. Yeah, no, I always tell younger people the most powerful play you can do is to buy a four family on owner occupied financing, live there for a couple of years and do it again. And uh, that is supercharging returns because you get to do the low down payment game. And I guess three percent first time home buyer. I didn't realize that, but because I've been an investor for so long, my financing options are, are so much tougher. That <laughs> right. I, I look at the people on their, their owner occupied loans and they're beautiful and they are such an opportunity that uh, you might as well capitalize it, especially if you're in your 20s. Um, it, it's a great play. It's such an interesting conversation because, you know, I bought my first house in 2009 and it was just such a different environment than where we are today because um, at that time there was a housing credit uh, that was out for like $8,000 to kind of supercharge people to incentivize to purchase. And we're coming out of, you know, the 0809 crash. And prices still hadn't really bottomed out. I think home prices bottomed out maybe in 2011 or so. And I bought a condo and it was new construction and i was underwater a, a number of years um not until probably 2019 did the value actually go above where i purchased it and, and that's really a condo thing not necessarily a housing thing um it was in a good area and i bought it because i knew that if anything happened to my job you know in the mortgage industry we're 100 commission that I, I knew i could rent it out very very easily so that was a really important um but here in this environment you know there's quote unquote recession talk there's you know inflation Housing prices are still going up. Rates are still, you know, quite high. I mean, we were locking rates in at three percent in December of 2021, and then within six months in June, rates hit mid sixes. I mean, just the, the the speed of rates going up was just unprecedented. We haven't seen that that, that stuff since 1981, really. The shocking that prices really haven't collapsed with that unprecedented spike going. You know, you you mentioned a couple of things I want to touch on before we keep going. Yeah. I saw a chart this week. I posted it on Instagram and I'll, I'll post it in the show notes. It tracked the growth of rents versus the growth of housing prices. 
So you see the housing prices really spike in 2005 and rents are just creeping along very steadily. And then 2008, you know, pricing on the housing came off the top and it was getting closer to rents. And that's actually when I started buying. But the prices did continue to fall till about 2011. But I never sweated it because the rents never really fell. They went sideways and they creep up. They creep up slowly. So one of the things I do, even if I'm buying a home, like let's say I'm a 26 year old and buying my first home, even though I'm going to live in it, I'm very conscious of what I could get if I had to rent it because that's your bailout that's protecting your bottom side. Like if you lose your job or something and, and you have to downside your life and you have to move out of that house and maybe get a smaller apartment, what can it rent for? Can it support this mortgage that you're doing? So um, a very interesting chart. And then if you, if you watch the chart go even further where we're at today, again, home prices have really taken off and rents have lagged and the, the gap between the two is pretty wide. So right now is a little tricky to buy. Yeah. I mean, like the average age of a first time home buyer a couple of years back was 27, 28, whatever in that range. And now from the National Association of Realtors, most recent data, it's 36 years old, 36 years old for the first time home buyer. And, you know, you talk about a first time home buyer, let's say you get in, you get, you buy a first house at 25, right? And then, you know, I kind of share this example a lot because it's pretty powerful in my opinion. And, and, you know, somebody that I've worked with that just bought their fourth house, you know, I think in 20, at the end of 2021, and they came to me seven, eight years ago, you know, making 40 grand and no savings, you know, nothing to cut in their budget. And it's like, well, what are we going to do here? Um, the only, only option you're going to have is to try to figure out a way to be able to increase income. So he found a second job, you know, doing smart, smart home installation on the weekends, started making, you know, about a grand, two grand a month, extra, extra. So we went from zero savings and, and strive for 25, just so for listeners out there, the 25 means, hey, somebody can build their life to be able to save 25% of their income. They're going to be setting themselves up to be able to have choices of how they want to invest and be able to kind of march towards financial freedom. So this person went from saving 0% to saving about 19% within about two weeks, just by switching a few things. And he bought the first house for about 150, saved up, you know, a couple years later, bought the second one for around 250. And I'm making these very round numbers just for simplicity. Um, and then a couple years later, bought the third one, again, turned the old one into a rental. Um, and then this past, uh, you know, fall in 2021, bought that fourth house for around 450. And so he had four properties, three rentals, and basically put down 5% or less on all these properties. And today, you know, that portfolio is worth over $2 million. And he started with literally zero savings, making 40 grand a year, and it got better along the way. Um, so I use that example, because if you get in the game at 25 today, and let's just assume that home prices go up by 3% every single year, on average, you're going to have a, a massive head start on the person that's getting in the game at 36. A massive head start, a 10 year head start. But Dave Ramsey told me not to have any debt. That, that, that's right. <laughs> don't don't have debt. Right. Wait 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 till you're 40, 49 uh, years it, old to buy a house. <laughs> it's a phenomenal example, and the first thing I take away from it is people look at housing prices and where we're at now, and they say, you know, the opportunity's gone. Like you bought all those houses years ago, and it always looks like that. You know, in 2008. You could look back to the 80s and you're like, oh, my God, the prices were so much lower. I mean, we talk about the 1% rule a lot for um, real estate investors. If you went to 1975, it was a 2% rule. Like people, margins have compressed. The economy has changed. But your story illustrates there is still opportunity if you hustle. And it's unusual for someone making $40,000 a year to be like, you know what? I'm just going to I'm going to do it. I'm going to get the side job and I'm going to save all of that money because it's long term thinking. And most people are short term thinkers. But the strive for 25, I was going to get into that a little bit. 
I love that because 25, it sounds like a huge number, but it's about priorities. If you make it your top priority, long-term goals, I am going to set myself up financially, not next week, but six years from now. And you commit to that, you can completely change your life. Taking somebody from where they are today, you know, and trying to help them go to a higher level, whatever that may, that may be. You can only bring a horse to water. You can't make the, the, the horse drink water, that, that kind of analogy. But at the same time, the more that we talk about this stuff, the more we talk about and share examples of people that are doing things, they're doing things creatively, talking about investing. I think the more as a society, as a society we talk about money in general, I think the better off we're going to be, you know, because I think the, the societal subconscious is go get a job, go to college, get a job, have 100000 in student debt, work till you're 65, have a 401k and retire. For me, that, well, that that's not enough. And I think there's a lot of people out there that would agree that they don't want to be reliant, especially the, young, the younger generation. They don't want to be reliant on another company to help them reach their goals and dreams. They want to be able to build something for themselves. You know, I just met you recently, but I could tell quickly we're very aligned on our messaging we want to get out there. And, you know, I don't, I don't really care so much trying to train the person, trying to get from 40 to 50 houses. The message I really want to get out there is the everyday guy how much one or two or three houses over the course of 25 years during your career, if you can put away um, a nice investment property, the cash flows, it's going to take care of you better than your actual job. I told the story, I think on the last podcast about this woman, and this is a story from a while ago. She worked at a company 30 plus years and she had a pension. Their pensions were more common back in the day, but she bought one four family in her life. And by the time she retired, the four family was taking care of her better than the pension did. 35 years of work besides one four family. It's really the power of real estate investing that a lot of people don't get. The everyday person doesn't get. I want to reach the tradesman who's out there and just say, you know what? Just buy one asset and do that. I mean, it's going to take care of you if, you if you pay attention to it. I love that example. You know, to break it down that's so that simply, a pension that like in this environment, a pension is just like worth quote unquote gold, right? To have a, a company that's going to offer a pension that doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, my grandpa, you know, retired from the Union Pacific Railroad and had an amazing pension and stock options and whatever. And it just doesn't exist anymore. One of the stories I tell a lot about is, you know, somebody that I had on my podcast, his name is Mark Oshiro. He's out in Hawaii. He's a firefighter, has a good job. He's got a pension and something hit him along his way uh, along the way in his you know personal journey his father retired at 60 something 64 65 and then within about six months you know had a stroke and changed his life in terms of how he was able to live and doing i think he's doing okay um but for mark you know as a firefighter have a pension you know working 20 something years like okay a pension like we said it's an amazing thing and you know for him it's like i don't, I don't want to wait for 65 what what if something happens to me before then then i'm not gonna have my pension like what else can I do? And he, you know, had a friend that was investing in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So from a Hawaii investing, I think 6,000 miles away in Pittsburgh, buying single family houses. And then he got into the game and had a kind of a mentor and scaled up to 14 units in a couple of years. And now he's got an amazing portfolio that's doing well. And he's got this other lane that's allowing him to have that backup plan and build in that retirement. And I, I just love talking about this stuff because it just sounds so, it just sounds so simple. Like, Buy a house, no big deal. Buy a rental, no big deal. But like when you when you take time and compounding into the end of the equation, we're talking very powerful stuff. And it's just, I think we, we need to be talking more about this stuff. Absolutely. Besides the short-term thinking that people fall into, I think there's a problem with people are looking for the short thing and they, they 
bought the societal thing of, you know, go to college, get a study job. And that's going to take a long time to break, even though we've come around a lot to understanding that that might not be the right path. People still hold on to it for a while. And the, the best example I like to give is like annuities. If you buy an annuity, you're looking for someone else to do the work for you, someone else to take the risk for you. You want guaranteed sure thing. And the cost of that is very, very high. And you're really kneecapping yourself because you want that security so badly. But if you um, if you shift your mindset and become the annuity company by yourself, by buying houses, you get to keep all that return. And the annuity companies are doing pretty well. The margin between what they pay out and what they keep is large. You don't want to give that away. You need to take responsibility for your life and look after your investments like that. And you'll be far, far better off by giving up a little bit of surety. When you, when you talk about real estate and, and the, the risks and uncertainties and, and, you know, I've had some issues on a couple of rental properties with some tenants and that's just par, par for the course and whatnot. But when you look at the bigger picture, 10 years, 20 years down the road, there's a lot of other you know global things that are going to be coming into play. And, you know, I, I should be more well-versed on this, you know, before bringing it up, but I, I know from a, just a population standpoint, you know, countries like China, countries like Russia are going to have massive population collapses, which is going to change the global, you know, landscape of our, of our economies. Um, but at the same time, I think you're, that, that also kind of feeds into more people from other countries wanting to come to the United States. And if that happens, you're going to have even more demand for land. It's funny, you hinted at some issues with the rental property and a lot of people like to cling on to those issues. I mean, I self-manage 90 units currently and I have an issue every month, <laughs> but they're worth it. They're worth it. That's the mess. That's the other message I want to get out to people is like, you can tell this colorful story of someone that really screws you over. It was worth it. That's the price you pay for outsized returns. What are, what have been some of the issues you have? Anything, anything entertaining? I was self-managing one property and the rest of my stuff was not self-managed. And just at the end of the day, you know, I think my, my biggest lesson that I would give to somebody is that if you don't have enough time to really devote to something to just offload it, offload it to, to, to specialists. And, you know, somebody, you know, just took took advantage of a situation, so to speak. And, you know, it, it is what it is. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really interesting story to be honest and probably not for this, for this, uh, uh, podcast, but, I understand. but, but yeah, I mean, if I definitely advise, especially somebody that's early on in the game, their first their first rental for sure. You you want to do it yourself. That for at least have one year of experience doing it yourself, so you know what you're getting into, and then you can always outsource it to another another company. In my opinion, for, for me, I think it also shows a commitment to it. Like you're not trying to avoid the hard part. You're going to get your yeah. hands dirty and learn the hard part, and then if you outsource it later, you will understand if you have a good property manager because you know what they should be doing and not. Whereas if you never get your hands dirty a little bit, it tells me that you're kind of avoiding the work and you're also never going to get that deep hands-on knowledge. So I give the same advice, but now that you've outsourced some properties, has the management gone okay? It's going well enough. I mean, you definitely have to manage the manager for, for sure and, and set proper expectations uh, in terms of systems and timing and, and, and reporting and data. Um, it's never where you want it to be. It's never, never perfect. But yeah, at the end of the day, you know, when you talk about, the, the power, the, the, and when we talk about the four pillars of real estate, cash flow, appreciation, mortgage balance, pay down, and then also the tax benefits. I mean, when you start talking about no, no, like a cost segregation and an accelerated depreciation, if you continue to accumulate, like that's why some of these politicians that we know, you know, very, very, very well, who don't pay taxes, they're in real estate. Real estate is so powerful. And like you mentioned, an annuity, 
an annuity, income taxes, you know, 401k, IRA, IRA withdrawals, all these things are going to have tax events at some point in time. And real estate has the same thing, but I mean, to be able to wipe out your tax liability on your W2 job because of real estate, that's the cost segregation part of, of the world just blew my mind once I figured out what was possible there. And, and it's very specific in terms of the type of real estate you have, but I mean, we can go on and on about real estate. It's just, it's just crazy. Absolutely. Super powerful taxes, everything, the amortization. Yeah, I could talk for a long time, but I want to hear a little bit about the podcast. How many episodes do you have and, and what have, uh, what's been the best part of starting a podcast so far? First off, we're 60 episodes, 61 episodes in. Um, we're doing two a week, you know, which is kind of crazy. We're kind of making up for lost time. I never thought a podcast and doing a podcast never, ever entered my brain in my entire life ever. And I knew that, you know, being in the mortgage industry, having kind of real estate, kind of doing it on my own. I never had a mentor in real estate, just kind of learning things along, along the way, reading a bunch of books. It's like, well, I know that I have a lot to be able to kind of add value to help somebody on their own journey, maybe help somebody accelerate the process of building wealth and, and maybe uh, skip some mistakes. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to do something, but a podcast was never one of the things I ever dreamed of. And just it just kind of happened. And for me, you know, like I mentioned before, you know, the mortgage industry, it's been a rough 12, 15 months or so. Um, you know, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of a lot of work. And I kind of, you know, hit, hit a point in, in the the part of maybe May of last year, where I realized that what I'm doing right now in my day job, it, it, if I keep going, doing what I'm doing, it's probably not going to be enough. I need to be doing more to be able to really make sure that I can, you know, sustain the business and keep going and come out of this thing, you know, better and stronger. And so, you know, one of the books that um, I had been reading was Atomic Habits. And, you know, but James Clear talking about the process of building habits and the kind of the biology behind it and all kinds of other things that go into it. And so, you know, going through my day, I get up with the kids, you know, get them to school. We have twins that are, that are three and a half. So one, and then they go to two different schools uh, uh, with just the things that they need. So, you know, get to, get, get to work, you know, be done by five. My wife is a counselor. So she sees clients all day, all the way through six o'clock central time. So I pick up the kids at five and it's daddy time for, you know, three hours, you know, get them through, you know, dinner, bath, nighttime, all that stuff. And by eight o'clock, you know, trying to get them to go to sleep, it's like, okay, the stress and anxiety, I have to go to my computer when this is done and log back in and get some work done to be able to keep things going. And that, that stress, that anxiety, the, all that was just, it was crushing because there were days that I would do it. And then there were days that I wouldn't do it. And I just was so hard on myself because thinking, you know, I got to keep things going, got to keep things going. And so that book, it, I was just in the right moment in my life that, you know, it hit me in a, in a, in a certain way. It's like, you know, he talks about the two minute rule. Two minute rule meaning, hey, when you want to build a habit, start out small, just do two minutes. And building a habit, it takes, you know, continuity, it takes consistency. Because if you go two weeks and you stop, I mean, really, the way your brain works and the brain works in terms of building the neuron circuits and memories and habits, you got to start over. And whether that's three weeks or four weeks or whatever. And so he talks about, hey, if you just do two minutes, two minutes is enough to keep the street going. So for me, I was like, hey, I got, I'll try it out. And so I turned on, turn on a timer for two minutes and I did like one thing and I stopped, which is the most foreign thing I could ever think of to doing. And I did a couple of times. And then within a week, I was like, okay, I'm rocking, you know, a couple of days I worked an hour, a couple of days I only worked two minutes because I was felt like shit, part of my French. And, but I did two minutes and within about three weeks, it's like looking, like looking forward to logging in and getting a couple things done. And some days I worked, you know, till past midnight. Cause I was just, on a, on a roll. 
and taking that pressure off me uh, off mentally was important and you know just open up a whole, a whole new world and so literally by doing that work and kind of going through that own mental process for me you know i started posting on instagram in, uh, in july and july 12th and i posted one reel every single day and haven't missed one day so if i'm going to practice what i preach i mean you know, i have to I have to be doing that in terms of just the social media thing um the podcast started in september and um it's all about this stuff like okay You've broken the wealth process into three into three equations: the investment equation, the savings equation, and the results equation. If you want to build wealth, you have to have money to invest, right? And so that's kind of what the savings equation is all about: income minus your expenses equals your savings. And there's so much content about cutting your costs and expenses, and cutting your Starbucks coffee and whatever, and not enough about increasing income. There's so many people out there that are, that are doing things creatively to be able to generate income. And maybe it's a thousand bucks a month. Maybe it's more. Maybe it's a side hustle. Maybe it's a business. Maybe it's consulting. Maybe it's social media. Whatever it is, but there's ways that people are are, are spending their time to be able to generate income, and it's, it's pretty cool to be able to to be in that kind of world and and uh, seeing it, talking to people, and then obviously the investment equation. You buy an asset, you get a rate of return over time, and that becomes your total return. The results equation is is a little bit of a, of a kind of a, a gray area of what that actually means. This is my take on it. Uh, if you want to go from where you are today, with let's just say you have no savings. And you want to be able to generate more income to be able to invest. How do you go from where you are today, the person you are today, with the skills you have, and and the, you know, the subconscious programs that are operating your, your daily uh, your daily life? How do you go from that to somebody that's going to be doing more? Something has to happen internally to be able to help you do more, to do more, do diff do things differently. And so we've kind of broken it down into: Hey, your thoughts literally dictate your results. Your thoughts affect how you feel affects how you act and over time become your results so it starts inside of us like literally your thoughts will dictate your results and so i think when people can realize that you have control over that to a certain point um that's when things get pretty crazy you absolutely have control over it you have to uh, acknowledge that and take responsibility for it there were two words you mentioned though that i want to touch on like how is the stress and anxiety today after implementing these habits it's for sure still there. I don't think it ever, for me, it never, it never goes away. Um, that's just how my, 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 my mission, how my brain works, how, how I'm just continuing trying to level up. Um, but I handle it. I handle it differently. I handle it in a better way. I control it. Um, you know, I set better expectations with myself internally, you know, that if I don't get done what I, what I, what I didn't, what, what, what I thought I wanted to get done kind of thing, you know, I have my own routines and ways that I can, you know, deal with that internally. So yeah, it's different. I can relate a lot because um, we deal with stress and anxiety a lot. I'm very involved in my men's group, the Fraternity of Excellence, and we definitely try to get our financial lives uh, together. But the stress and anxiety is like a really holistic thing that it. Uh, I used to deal with stress and anxiety, and I actually had to move away from some of my money pursuits to fill that void and actually find my inner strength where... It was just a matter of uh, really committing to believing in myself and knowing whatever happens, I'm going to be okay because I can handle it. And uh, habit building is important, but the stress and anxiety, it's a topic that hits home because I'm dealing with this stuff every day, trying to help guys realize like the stress and anxiety is just a, a thought pattern. As you said, we control our thoughts and it's this thought pattern that can really derail people. So it's such an important topic. I'm glad you brought that up. And I think, it, it really is important because, you know, you have people that are in different stages of their journey too, and, and things evolve, all the things that we're talking about in terms of our thoughts and thought patterns and anxiety and stress, these, they change as you kind of go down different journeys and then you reach certain goals. Like, let's just take somebody who, you know, 
is struggling financially and you know barely getting by and trying to be able to put money away to be able to have more more flexibility to be able to afford groceries right or, or afford things for their kids versus somebody i hate to use you know somebody like michael jordan which is you know by far one of the greatest basketball players of all, of all time but he won six championships and you know we talk about the comfort zone a lot it, you know you have successes you have struggles and when you're down here struggling it's it's easy to work 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 and get back to the, this equilibrium but then when you keep going and sometimes you know these successes can be just as uncomfortable as uh these struggles and we, we find this natural equilibrium this natural comfort zone and then you see people like a jordan or a kobe who had just have this 10th degree where they have one success and they want it so much more than the next person they'll put all the work in to keep going they set these goals they set these visions that they, they don't stop till they get there and they have this different level, this different, you know, range of, of how they want to, you know, achieve things. And so you have these extremes, right? But then you have all these levels in between of, of where somebody is in terms of what their goals are and what they want to accomplish. And, that, you know, I just think it's, it's very interesting, you know, how this all, all, the, all this stuff fits together in terms of the way we think and act. And, you know, getting near the end. And there's a couple of questions I wanted to ask you as someone who reviews a lot of credit reports and sees behind the walls of a lot of people's personal finances. What are the biggest errors that people are making with their money? And then the second part, I want to know what are the major differences between the mistakes the older people are making versus the mistakes the younger people are making? The biggest rule of thumb that 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 we see that's very simple, very easy to, for somebody to be able to help implement and, and update and boost their scores is let's say you have got a credit card that's a thousand bucks and you use a balance of six hundred dollars. That six hundred dollars on a thousand is a utilization of sixty percent. That same credit card, if you have three cards and they're all a thousand, and you take that that balance and you spread them over three cards, that's two hundred on a thousand, which is twenty percent. You can do that over three times. The credit bureaus they look at those utilization ratios. That's very important. So even if you take your credit card and you spend seven hundred bucks or six hundred dollars and you pay it off, pay it off every single month, you don't know when each of the bureaus is going to be reporting those. And so if it's hitting it at a sixty percent utilization, it's gonna over a period of time, it's gonna be bringing your scores down. So keeping your your ratios of utilization on your cards at 30% or below at all times is really, really important. Um, you know, if you've got collections or late payments, that's a whole different story. Um, but then, you know, the older generation, the biggest mistake that I see from, from, you know, certain people is not having enough credit. You know, let's say you've got a student loan and a car payment and no credit cards and there's no activity. Maybe you pay off your car, you have no activity at all. And if you don't have all, all that activity in the history, it's hard for the bureaus to be able to give you a rating if you don't have the act activity. So having activity is important as well. And there's people that 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 fear having debt, which I also get too, but it's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. So those are great strategies and great points about the um, how to affect your credit score. But to me, I look at it and I, I take a couple steps back, 10,000 foot view. It's really that you have to take the time to learn what people are looking for. How am I going to make these moves? When you take the time to care about your financial decisions and your financial situation, then you learn, okay, what is the credit bureau going to judge me on? And then you craft your behavior around that because you're trying to paint the picture to get yourself ahead. But if you just avoid it and you never really dig into it, then you end up having bad uh, a bad credit evaluation when you apply for a loan because you weren't even aware of what they're looking at. They're looking at you're using too much credit where it would have just been a couple of phone calls to increase your your um, available line of credit to have a lower utilization rate. It just comes back to, and they touch on this in um, The Millionaire Next Door a lot. And they said the millionaires, they pay attention to their money. 
And the people who don't make it so far, they avoid paying attention to it. It's just what you focus on. I love that you bring that up because, you know, from what I see, even my own personal behavior um, patterns, when you fear something, it's because you don't think you're good at it. Like if you, if you fear looking at your credit scores or if you're looking at your bank statements and fear this, it's probably because you don't have much money saved or you know that your spending habits are terrible. And, you know, one of the things that we'd like to talk about more and kind of bringing back up the focus on income is that if you're earning income, if you're generating more income streams, if you're spending time generating income, that a lot of times that kind of changes the equation for what's happening in your personal financial situation. If you're generating more income and you're, and you're spending more time focusing on generating more income, like literally, if you're th if you're thinking about generating more income, a side hustle, or you know some type of business, you're not spending you're not spending time spending money somewhere else. You're not spending time at, at a mall or on Amazon buying stuff. Like literally, like it's an it's an input output, like zeros and ones. If you're spending time on one thing that's positive, you're not spending time on something that's negative. And so that's why I mean, like literally, I, when we talk about you know talking about finances and, and budgets, we don't really talk about expenses. I don't give a shit about your expenses because if you put the right patterns in place about income. And I'm talking about like to start, to start someone's journey. Let's focus on the positive stuff. Let's, let's increase income. And if you do that, like it's crazy. The people that we talk to about this stuff in a month and six months, their natural spending be behaviors change automatically because they're focusing on, on something positive like that. So it's just, it's just interesting how all fits together. It is interesting. Personal finance is endlessly fascinating. That's why I spend so much time with it. <laughs> There's defense and offense. I think both are important, but um. Yeah. What are the big long-term goals for the future? That's that's what I always like to end the show with. What are you looking to accomplish in the next long-term? At the end of the day, you know, social media, podcasting, real estate, all these things do actually intertwine with where I'm trying to go. Um, my, my vision is to literally be able to take this platform, the online course that we built, talking about helping people find their side hustle and literally go to a realtor office and say, hey, your job is to go you know, help people that are ready to buy a house, go buy a house. What are you doing to be able to help people incubate them and get them ready to buy a house? Well, nothing is the answer. Well, here's Strive for 25's platform. We can help people literally learn from the ground up, have the content, have the resources, have the videos, have the courses to build, help somebody, you know, get ready to be able to purchase real estate. And whether it be income, whether it be credit building, all these things, the the knowledge, the, the framework, the blueprint to be able to, to know why real estate is important, to be able to have this platform built up enough to be able to have it as a tool that, People in the country know, hey, Strive 25, this is a tool to help people build wealth. Awesome. I can't wait to see it happen. I actually remembered what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I look, at, uh, I look at the gym a similar way. When I'm in the gym, I'm building my health and I'm not spending money elsewhere. So that's <laughs> one of my main hobbies. And I focus on that. It's like only good input in, not taken away from you. Small point I wanted to add in there. But Joel, thanks so much for uh, coming on today. Where can we find you online? Yeah, you can find us at Strive for 20 on Instagram, Strive for 25 underscore. If you Google Strive for 25 on YouTube or Instagram or any any podcast platform, you'll find us there. Um, one thing about the gym, if you have one second, like when you're going to the gym, you know, I think I heard a Joe Rogan uh, quote or video talking about, you know, getting that hard workout in, you know, talking about stress and anxiety, that hard workout in every single day for the, those people that are building something, it takes all that away. It, it, it alleviates that stress, you know, from an ongoing thing. I think it's a, a, I love the gym. So yeah, I get it. And it'll help your real estate investing too, believe it or not. Mine <laughs> right with the workouts, it really will. So strive for 25. You're able to find Joel. You know where to find me at Jeffrey Higgins on Twitter and join me in the fraternity of excellence, of course. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Men's Victory Alliance. We need your help in spreading the light to other men who need it. 
please leave a rating and review so we can grow and get the message out. Visit mensvictoryalliance.com and stay in touch by subscribing to the email list. You will receive a PDF written by Jeff Higgins for signing up. Follow us on socials and YouTube. We are always working on providing value to the man who is looking to level up and win.